for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we all have our bad days. You can almost feel them coming on as soon as you open your eyes and get out of bed. But is there a good way or perhaps just a better way to have a bad day? The author of a book called The Lazy Guru joins us with some helpful advice to get you through those very tough ones. We look into a new crisis sweeping across Iran over the suspected poisonings of schoolgirls. Authorities acknowledged over the weekend that 50 schools have been struck in a wave of possible cases. The number could likely be much higher. What is going on? How is it related to those ongoing protests by women in the country that started last fall? But first, with the spring travel rush coming up, it's going to be spring break soon, we check on why the cost of travel is so high these days, from flights and how you can get a better deal, to how airlines appear to be cracking down on passengers who don't conform with carry-on luggage rules, and we get the details on why hotel costs have spiked recently and what to expect for the rest of the year. First up, March break is nearly upon us, and parents... Students all across the country will be looking for a bit of a getaway in the next coming next two weeks or so. But the cost of everything will probably have a lot of people looking to stay a little closer to home. If you've been looking to plan a little bit of a getaway, you might have been struck by the cost of hotel rooms now. If you were used to the way they were pre-pandemic, if you got used to some of the deals you were seeing sort of during the years of the pandemic, those are all gone. Even a quick holiday is proving to be a pricey option this year. Part of the issue, uh, again, is high hotel costs, no matter where your destination is. Right across Canada, prices appear to be up. Availability is pretty limited, unless you're willing to pay a price that might make you pause. So we thought tonight we'd look into what's going on out there, uh, first with hotel rooms, but also with flights and all kinds of different stuff as you get ready to, to go away. You probably already booked a lot of stuff, but this is just to let you know what the lay of the land is. Um, we know that hotels struggled through the height of the pandemic. Of course, many of them were closed. Um, capacity was way down. They had to clean rooms. Um, it was trouble with staffing and so forth. But now a combination of factors such as ongoing labor issues, hotels still not running at full capacity, and the failure of business travel to rebound with inflation thrown in on top of all of that, it's created a bit of a perfect storm for those of us looking for deals on accommodation. With more on all of this is Wayne Smith. He's a professor with the Ted Rogers School of Hospitality and Tourism Management at Toronto Metropolitan University. Thanks for your time tonight. It's great to be here. So it's not our imagination. It's not my imagination. Hotel room prices like night stays are up. It feels like they're up quite significantly. And there aren't many deals to be had out there these days. No, there's not a lot of deals out there right now. What we're seeing is in the marketplace with the inflationary prices is pushing prices up. Hotels just went through two and a half years of COVID. There's no sort of dollars there to sort of back up and backfill in with the inflation. And so they have to be making money at the prices that is cost them to run the operation. So, you know, with salaries up, with the inflation power up, with all, every, all the costs up, it's rising costs with the hotels as well. And the two things that you're seeing is, is that, the one market that hasn't quite come back yet is the business market. Right. And that was a bread and butter market for so many industries or so, so many hotels, especially in larger cities like Victoria, like Vancouver, like Toronto. That market has not come back in the same way quite yet. 
So what you're left with is a situation where hotels spent uh, two years not making enough money because of the pandemic. They're back, but inflation is up and they don't have that that law, that that reliable group of people that always used to back the rest of cheaper deals for the rest of us who are just traveling. Exactly. And then you, you also have the increased cost of labor right now. And if they can find labor at the moment and you add the, added the increased cost of food and all those types of things. You know, once again, if you think your grocery bill is expensive, look at a hotel grocery bill and it gets really pricey really quick. I've also noticed that, I mean, I think one of the issues is still, as you mentioned it, is labor because hotels aren't operating at 100 percent capacity right now. Yeah. And it's a balancing of labor. So what we're seeing more and more is this balancing act of technology and labor. So, for example, how many staff do you really need if everyone's self-checking in via their phone? Where do you need staff? How are you allocating staff? Um, In a post-COVID world, how often are we cleaning rooms? How many people do we need to clean rooms? So trying to figure out a whole new staffing model and a brand new business model has been really tough for a lot of properties. So in that in that environment, then I suppose hotel chains simply don't offer you as many loss leaders, or or they don't need them, right? They don't they don't need to to lure you in at cheaper rates on the off chance that you'll come back. Well, the thing about it is, what we're seeing with the leisure market is that the leisure market tends to be a lot more domestic. So we're seeing a lot more domestic travel within the country, and people who generally can afford most of the rates. And what we're seeing is people taking more frequent but shorter vacations. So we're seeing these three, four night types of things. So get in the car, do a little road trip somewhere, take a three, four night vacation, and you'll do that sort of multiple times instead of taking sort of one long vacation. And what impact does that have on a business that uh, I know from from experience that that within the hotel industry, they need to plan ahead, right? Like they need to know what's booked six months from now, not next week. It's very difficult from a hotel perspective because the predictive model modeling is very, very challenging right now. Because what happens is generally people are booking within 72 hours of their stay. So once again, you don't know necessarily if you're going to be full. And the thing about it is the last two years, because there's been such an inconsistent amount of visitation, what we're seeing is we're seeing it's very hard to try to actually predict who's going to be coming and what kind of volume you're going to be getting. Having that base of business travel and convention travel has always been a real healthy way for a hotel to exist. And with that being less consistent now in a Zoom world, and in, a, in a, a world where a lot of companies are sort of nervous about the economy, so they're not sending, they're cutting back travel, you're also seeing that people don't necessarily want to travel when I can do a Zoom call or when I can work from home. So all those things are combining is making the business market really tough. So it's changing. But we are also seeing more what we call leisure travel. And what that is, is people mixing leisure and business travel. So if they're working from home anyway, they'll go take a four-day weekend or a five-day thing, and they'll go stay at a hotel, and they can work during the day anyway, and then kind of mix that in with their leisure. And yet, when you look, if you go out there looking for a hotel room in Vancouver, for instance, on a weekend, really, there's not much out there, and it's all pretty pricey. So clearly, they're things are okay, but but they're having to kind of reinvent the way the model works. Yeah, it's completely being reinvented right now. And it's a real challenge for the hotels because what we're seeing is, is this blend of technology and levels of service. How much right. service do we provide now, given that 
people's technology. Do we really need to have a concierge when we could have someone text someone down? So how, how many live people do we really need at this moment? Wayne, when you look at some of the issues around labor, because I know that's been a big one, um, I know that the federal government's trying to, to speed up some of the temporary foreign, foreign worker programs. We haven't seen that arrive into the system yet, have we? We haven't. And it's a great system until you realize that most of the hotel stays are Toronto, Vancouver, and with the housing costs. Right. So you're going to bring people in on temporary foreign working visas, but how, where would they live? How will they afford to live? And once again, in order to do that, you have to, the wages are going to have to come up. While this seems like a really good idea, it's a real struggle because, you know, given the housing shortages, especially in the Canada's biggest markets, where are we going to put people that are coming over to work here? So it, there is a catch-22 there. Yeah, it feels like a bit of a perfect storm. I mean, we see it in all kinds of industries, but I feel like the hotel industry is one that we we dip in and out of, right? It's not like groceries or transit. We dip in and out of the hotel industry. So we, we're kind of awake to the changes when we see them because you're used to, oh, what will a hotel room in Toronto cost for a weekend if it's not a long weekend or there's not something, some major event going on? And then you go on and realize the prices are all much different than they were in 2019. Yeah, and we're, and we're, and we're seeing, once again, the marketplace is what will bear. And we're also seeing a downsides in a lot of the short-term rental housing. So a lot of the Airbnb, a lot of those types of properties, because of whether it be zoning laws, whether it be people who realize how much work it is to do an Airbnb or short-term rental property, or a lot of associations and things like that have really cracked out on them. Right. I guess, I guess, and rentals are so coveted now that people who may have thought that, that, uh, that short-term letting was, was, was financially viable now realize they can probably make more money renting it out to a tenant. Well, and it's a lot easier on people because you're not having to hire cleaning staff. You don't have to worry about if they're making, you know, huge noise and getting noise complaints, all, all those things that go along with being a short-term rental owner. It's much more challenging than a lot of people thought, I think, thought that, thought it was. Where do you see this um, shaking out in the next 12, 24 months when it comes to both for the consumers, such as myself, and for the industry? Well, I, I see the big thing co- coming out is that you are going to see a little bit of a leveling off. We're seeing the inflation get leveling off a little bit, and I think you're going to see the pricing leveling off a little bit over the next little while. I think there are going to be deals to be had, but you're going to have to look longer out. Maybe look at going to visiting rural parts of Canada and those areas, and I think you'll see that there's some deals in those sort of areas. The other thing I think you're going to see is hopefully what we're seeing is because everyone's sort of equalizing within the business market, we're starting to see a little bit of the business travel come back. The last thing I think you're going to see, I think you're really going to see this sort of technology is going to become much more prevalent in the industry. And how we manage the technology will be a really interesting question for the next little while. Yeah. So, so in other words, um, so for 24 months, maybe look around, maybe look, maybe don't plan that so that no offense to the big cities, but maybe start looking a little further afield to where the deals do exist and explore those places. Well, Canada's a wonderful country. There's lots to see. So lots, lots to do. And, you know, there's lots of places you can explore. And this is true. I mean, I was looking at hotels outside of Canada. This is true everywhere, right? Every hotels across North America are struggling with the same issues that Canadian hotels are struggling with. You can go to Japan, you can go to Australia, you can go to uh, New York, Paris, London, all, all throughout Europe. 
all of North America, this is a pretty consistent story almost globally at the moment. We're seeing a lot of demand for that leisure type travel. And really what we're seeing is really demand in the leisure where you see that sort of mix up, mixing of the two. And what it's doing is we're seeing with inflation is driving up prices all around and there's just not a lot of labor out there, no matter anywhere in the world. Yeah. And, and and I was looking at Las Vegas recently and hotels there used to be notoriously cheap because they want to draw you in. And now mm-hmm. they're not. And now they're not. Now they well, are no longer. Well, and the thing about you look at a place like Vegas and not only are you paying the room, but you're also paying for resort fees. You're also paying for parking. Once again, you're seeing a lot of additional fees as well. So one of the things I'll caution people is make sure that when you're booking, really look at it what the real costs are versus the costs you just see on the website. Yeah, those resort fees can be a real can be a real surprise. We were in Florida recently and the resort fees were enormous. Yeah, and once again, sometimes you can negotiate those down by calling the hotel. Really? Well, one of the things I always tell people is one of the best ways to get your best deals is to pick up the phone and call the old-fashioned style and call the hotel directly. Because if you're booking with Expedia or you're booking with uh, one of the booking.com, one of them, they're usually paying about 20% commission. So if you call the hotel directly, chances are you can save yourself 10, 15% because, wow. and they're still making more money. In this world of, of, as they move to tech, you can still just pick up the phone and get a better deal. That's, that's There's an irony in there. Well, there is. And, it, and it's something that, once again, it doesn't work all the time. It depends on how busy the hotel is and all that's and, and all that. But you have a much better chance of getting it with that direct phone call. Well, Wayne Smith, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. We're checking in on travel and tourism and hospitality this hour with March break coming up. It's, you know, spring break for a lot of people. People are looking to go away. It may have been a while. Um, Now, a lot of us, or at least a fair number of us, have braved all kinds of issues with airports and airlines over the past while to head out on that trip that we put off uh, over the course of the height of the pandemic. Now, with baggage fees, delays, lost luggage, we've seen those images from different airports around the country, stories of bags disappearing for days on end and a number of other inconveniences, a far greater number of flyers these days are choosing to go with carry-on luggage only. It's made for some interesting scenes on planes where it looks like one of those giant games of trying to fit square pegs into round holes because some people show up with what appears to be all their worldly possessions and passing it off as carry-on luggage. I've seen some bags that look like they would be overweight, let alone uh, you know, can comply with the carry-on luggage rules. Now, it's again, it's made for some interesting scenes. It kind of slows everything down, too, because as passengers are trying to find places to put their bags, everything kind of halts. There's been lots of other reasons for delays for the past little while, so it's not the only one. Now, in my experience, airlines, given all the other headaches that are going on or have been going on, were fairly lenient with what exactly qualified as carry-on luggage. Uh, that may have come to an end, right in time for March break. Turns out those little stands beside each gate, you may have seen one at the airport, they're like little things with a little metal thing with a slot you're supposed to try and, if your bag fits in there, that qualifies. If not, it doesn't. They aren't just there for decoration, it turns out. Here's what one woman who goes by the handle Curious Creature had to say on social media about her recent experience at Toronto's Pearson Airport. 
This is a PSA for anyone flying out of Pearson, going with Air Canada. They are getting serious about their carry-on luggage situation. Like, it's a struggle. People are just struggling here. I fly out of YYZ almost monthly, and I've never seen them ask every single passenger to size their luggage. Even the wheels have to fit, so just make sure before you head to the airport, I have a haze and it fits. There you go. So that little thing, that contraption you see beside the gate that you're supposed to be able to put your carry-on luggage in, and if it fits, you're good. If it doesn't, you're not. They're using them now. So what's going on? Are airlines really, are all airlines cracking down everywhere? What do you need to know before you pack your bags and head to the airport uh, in the next few months? Joining me now is Leslie Kiter. She's a travel expert known as the Travel Lady. Leslie, thank you. Hi, Ben. Thank you for having me. So this was inevitable, wasn't it? I don't know if you've, you've probably <laughs> flown quite a bit recently, but it was a free-for-all with the carry-on luggage on a lot of flights. Oh, my goodness me. Yes, indeed. I mean, everybody knows if you've flown recently, getting into that lineup, making your way down the aisle, people are loading their carry on there. I mean, I've seen little women trying to hoist up these very heavy suitcases into the overhead bin. It's precarious. It is. And and time wasting, too, because you end up with all these people trying to shove all the, you know, you see people coming up and down the aisles trying to find different space and it just That's slows right. everything down. Yeah, yeah. And and how about the guy who, when you get on the plane, the first in, um, minute he gets on the plane, he puts his bag in the overhead bin in business and then carries on down to the back of the plane. And you yeah. think, what a cheek. I actually cheered when the flight attendant took his bag out and brought it back to him at the back of the plane. <laughs> yeah, there's been, I, I've seen some people too come on planes that, again, I was, as I was mentioning, they look like they're carrying all their worldly possessions. And I'm like, how can that possibly qualify? As I was saying, I, you know, that might be overweight, let alone carry on. So That's right. And the interesting thing is, is that carry on bags are not weighed. They are measured, right. but not weighed. So it adds to the weight. So uh, at least at Pearson and at least Air Canada appear to be using those little things that they have at every gate. They're actually starting to use them now. That mustn't come as a surprise. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, technology, um, I believe they've got them at Toronto, Vancouver and Montreal. So this gives you an instant uh how can I say, success or no success rate. If your bag fits in the side, you get a little um, tag that you put on your bag saying approved. If you're not approved, then you've got a hassle because you've got to get that bag checked in. And if you check it in at the gate and it's oversized, you're going to have to pay for that. And sometimes there's a penalty. Right. Uh, because they were being pretty lax in a number of ways, in mm-hmm. my experience, early on. First of all, they were, it was sort of a bit of an anything goes when it came to the carry-on. And if there were too many, if there wasn't room in carry-on, they would check your bags for free, right? I mean, they would sort of say, okay, we'll just check it. Don't worry about it. I gather that's all come, coming to an end as well. Well, on the last few flights I've been on, I mean, they've had much more requests from the check-in agents with that regard because flights have been so busy. So they make that announcement, you know, this is a very full flight. If you're doing carry-on, we ask you voluntarily, come and check your bag. It won't cost you anything. And everybody sits around and avoids avoids eye contact because they don't want to check their bag. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so, I mean, do you feel like we're entering into, I mean, we, we went through the baggage fee. I mean, I think there were people, when the baggage fees first came in and they weren't too egregious, you know, $25, a lot of people were willing to pay that. Um, just to avoid, I mean, people weren't used to using only carry-on um, all that right. often, especially if they were going somewhere for a while. But then with all the chaos over over the sort of the, 
just the very early days of everyone flying again with all the lost luggage and, you know, flights delayed mm -hmm. and, you know, all those stories we were reading. It looked like everyone was going to use carry-on. So the airlines were relatively lax about it. Do you think that, though, is coming to an end? They're going to now force us to pay the, pay the, the, the check luggage fee and so forth? Well, look, I mean, check luggage fees means a huge amount to the airlines. Uh, just before the pandemic, I mean, Air Canada raked in about $1.18 from those extra fees. So wow. this is a significant source of revenue for the airlines, and they're not going to give up on that uh, easily. And then when we've got this chaos of boarding, I mean, anybody who's been on a plane recently knows what it's like to have to stand in the aisle while somebody's fiddling with, they've got, what have they got? They've got their carry-on luggage, they've got their personal item, which is supposed to be like a handbag or a briefcase. Yeah. You've got people walking down the aisle with something that looks like a body bag. Yeah, or a backpack, yeah, or a giant, <laughs> a giant knapsack. So yeah. what do you advise travelers then now that um, we've sort of, Things have changed as we, you know, traveling is evolving as we're moving back and through different phases of all this. What would you advise travelers now when it comes to going to the airport with just carry-on luggage? Well, here's the thing. I mean, try and get boarded early. I mean, that's the thing. If you get on the plane first, you can find a space. Now, who gets on the plane first is generally if you're traveling business class, of course. And then if you're a frequent flyer with that airline, so sign up for all the airlines. So at least you can say, you know, I am a frequent flyer and start accumulating the, your points. Um, if that doesn't work, maybe you have to take your wife and kids on the business trip so families can be boarded first. <laughs> right, right. And and the bag makes a difference because I gather what it is, is you, you know, those those little slots they have and you're supposed to be able to put your bag, yes. your bag's supposed to fit in there, right? And I haven't yes. seen one used in a very long time. They sat there gathering dust. But according to, to people, yeah, according to people at Pearson, they're starting to use them again. So you need to make sure that your carry on is is indeed the right size. That's right. And there's another trick to this here, because in Air Canada and WestJet, they have very specific measurements, so it can't be taller than 21 and a half inches. That's including the wheels. And many of the carry-on luggage that you can buy is 22. So if you're that half inch over, you don't get in. And if you overstuff so, it, it doesn't fit, right? That's the other problem. <laughs> That's right. It's too fat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, well, yeah. I, I, I don't see them, you know, clearly there were reasons for this. It's, the timing isn't a surprise either that they're starting to crack down on this just as we're heading into that to the next busy season. They must have looked at what happened over Christmas and started to rejig things for the, uh, for the spring rush. Well, indeed. And I mean, understandably, people want to take carry on because they're worried about losing their bags, especially if they're going for a, a short period, three, four days. You can easily do carry on. Um, there's been so many stories of lost luggage. We've heard them, you know, on and on. But I mean, I've lost my luggage. I've been traveling a lot over the last year and I had a situation where my lug luggage went astray. But I have travel insurance, so you know what? Right. I went shopping. Wow! <laughs> Would you, did did it disappear on your way there, or on the on, on the way there, right? On or the on way the there. Way. Oh, so I was going on a rather fancy cruise, and I had to be dressed up for the occasion. So I told myself. So I went to their boutique, and I had a lovely time. So what's been going on with the, uh, it's not my imagination, prices really are up quite significantly when it comes to airfare this year. 
Oh, they are indeed. And it's a bit of a shock to a lot of people who were used to the declining cost of air tickets. And especially in the early days uh, last year, sort of June, July, when people were returning to travel, there were some really good deals out there because the airlines just wanted to get people back on, on board. And this year, um, I don't see many deals. A few, but not many. No, that's right. They're, they're not many at all. And I'm finding not just hotels, uh, not just air, but hotels as well are much more expensive than we've been used to in the past. And I think this comes down as well to the whole employment problem. Uh, everybody seems to be short-staffed at the moment. They're trying to recruit new staff. So obviously they've got to pay a little better to get that new talent there. Yeah, and you know, I, I was talking to someone just before you about about the hotel issue, and it's a combination of not being able to operate at full capacity because of staffing issues, inflation, the fact that business tourism hasn't returned. I guess airlines must be seeing some of the same thing. They have really heavy demand, but a lot of that demand is leisure travel, and that uh, is a different dynamic than than when you have lots of regular customers paying top dollar for for business class. Well, exactly. That's right. I mean, corporate travel is known to be the type of travel where you want the utmost flexibility in the ticket and you want to send your people on a business class flight. If they're going into a meeting, you want them arriving there refreshed and and not worn out like the rest of us holidaymakers staggering off the plane. (laughs) Yeah, on two hours sleep, trying to navigate your way through the airport. Are there any deals to be had out there? Are you seeing anything promising for, you know, spring, summer, even a little bit beyond? You know, you've got to really dig around for it. I think staying away from the super popular destinations, going to places that are not maybe as well known, those are areas where they're encouraging the influx of tourism. So um, obviously it's going to be a better price for that. But, you know, those well-established places for spring break, uh, you know, the Cancuns of the world and that, prices are are going to be high. And especially if you're booking only now for spring break, you're going to be paying a premium because it's last minute. Yeah, indeed. I was looking at, I was saying earlier, I was looking at a trip to Las Vegas just because I have a friend in Montreal and it's an easy place to meet because there's lots of flights. And Las Vegas Mm -hmm. this year was, was way, way up compared to what it had been in, say, 2019. Way up. Yes. Yes, that's right. And of course, Las Vegas is a very popular destination for conventions and that sort of thing because it's so conveniently located and everybody has flights wherever you are in North America you can get flights into Vegas so I think their convention business has uh, revived itself because now companies are back and they are holding conventions they are getting their employees traveling so naturally that would be a, a good place to go. So any tips for, for people out there maybe looking, maybe not spring break, because, because you're right, if you're booking now, you're not going to find a deal. It used to be you could mm-hmm. find some last-minute deals if you were flexible, but I don't think they're out there now. No, I think the last-minute deals are going to be more difficult to get. I'm, I'm finding that if you want to get the best deal out there, you should plan ahead. So many of the uh, different companies, be it cruise lines, river cruises, tour companies, there's a lot of offers out there to save money. So say if you're traveling later in the year or early next year, you know, we're getting bookings into 2025. Can you believe that people are locking things in because they want to take advantage of special offers out there? 
So I think planning is part of it. You know, don't be a last minute traveler because, you know, I feel when you're a last minute traveler, you might get a good bargain. But at the end of the day, aren't you just swiping up everything that nobody else wanted? I, I don't I don't want to be that person. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, sometimes it, it can be exciting to, to book something at the last minute, but only if you're only if there are deals to be had. Um, any any yeah. advice then to those people looking ahead? Maybe they are looking down the line, wondering because one of the things that's that you know technology is great, but it can also be really annoying because you have your you can get alerts when you're the price of the flight you want to take starts to go up and down, and it's almost like you know it's almost like playing the odds, right? You're sort of thinking, yeah. oh, is this am I buying low? Am I buying low enough. Um, do you have any advice in terms of just how to strategize getting yourself a, a flight ticket for the next little while? Yes, I have seen that um, option. I think it's on Google where you can get notifications and, and some other travel websites as well. And I guess that's a good idea. I mean, if you're prepared to be flexible when you travel, if you're prepared to travel midweek, then apparently that's a better option. Of course, if you're going for something like a cruise or a tour that has a set start date and finish date. Well, maybe if you adopt the flexible approach to say, well, if I get down into Miami two days before the cruise goes, then find a nice hotel and enjoy the city. So you, it's always flexibility is the biggest thing. Yeah. And cruises, I mean, I was in Miami not long ago. The, the cruises looked like there wasn't as big crowds as maybe we'd seen in the past, but they're starting to come back a bit, I think. Oh, my goodness. Cruising is back with a bang. Uh, some of the cruises, particularly for Europe, for example, Viking River Cruises, it's really hard to find a good stateroom on the cruises now with, because all the top staterooms have sold. So it's, it's just the, the bottom level. And there's nothing wrong with those. You know, my first river cruise was on the lead-in. Uh, they call it a river view a stateroom because you actually it's like being in the basement you level right. with the river but the swans <laughs> come along every morning and say good morning and that's fine <laughs> there you go so plan it so in other words don't leave everything to the last minute these days plan it advance and make sure you if you're if you're only bringing carry-on make sure it's the right size there's there's your advice <laughs> oh, yes, for the spring please. of 2023 leslie kiter thank you so much thank you lovely to be here one of the areas that uh, has been struggling post-pandemic, not everywhere, and you know, at this phase of the pandemic, is public transit. And the reports of incidents of violence on public transit in cities like Toronto have not helped. Uh, there's a new report out this week. It was some polling done by Ipsos for Global News that says a majority of uh, respondents still feel safe, but a quarter say quarter of people say they feel unsafe when alone, and about half have changed their behavior a little bit around public transit. Here's Dow Bricker of, of Ipsos Re. Well, when we asked people if they are changing their behavior, nearly half of the people that we interviewed said they were, especially women. So not going on transit by themselves, not going on transit at night, and looking for alternative methods of getting around, particularly uh, uh, not uh, uh, traveling on their own. Uh, so really, this is something where people are actually taking it into their hands to change their behavior. Uh, is it going to be a lasting thing? Hard to say. But, you know, for a city that's trying to get people to come back downtown, and particularly people who would be using transit, this has to be worrying. 
Daryl Bricker of Ipsos there referring to Toronto specifically, but security is not the only challenge facing public transit systems in the country. A change in rider habits because of more remote work and other factors in a time of declining ridership and labor challenges. Of course, there are labor challenges. Uh, one researcher says that all of this is is sort of piling up on it so that the funding model has gotten a bit out of whack. So some cities are looking at reducing routes in order to cope with the challenges. But when you start doing that, you start a vicious circle, right? Less service, less riders, less riders, less service, and so on and so forth. Willem Klumpenhauer is a sustainable transportation consultant and postdoctoral fellow at the University of Toronto's Transit Analytics Lab. And he joins us now. Thanks for your time tonight, Willem. Ben, thank you. This has been, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about the state of public transit as we emerge from the pandemic. We knew the challenges that transit faced during the pandemic. Uh, what have we been seeing of late? And, and you've talked a bit about the, the risks here of, of a death spiral, which would, in other words, you know, cutting services means less funding, less funding means less service, and then it all goes to hell in a handcart, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. So there's some structural problems with the way that we've been funding transit for a long time in in Canada, and also the way that you know transit works in a North American city where there's a lot of sprawl. It's it can be a little bit more difficult for transit to be as resilient, and those two things together sort of were exacerbated by the pandemic, um, and we're starting to see you know how transit agencies are reacting to to those challenges, to those feedback loops. What is the issue here? Because I know it's different in different cities, right? So ridership is back to normal levels in some places, not in others. Uh, when you look at, at Canada as a whole, where are we seeing the problems? Yeah, so there's these sort of these two negative feedback loops that are happening right now uh, at this basically at the same time. One is with ridership, right? So because a transit agency often relies a fair bit on fares to fund its operations, when ridership dips like it did during the pandemic, you're faced with the possibility of cutting service. But if you cut service, that's a good way to lose riders and, and lose ridership, which of course makes it harder to fund the service that you have and so on and so on. And then there's a second spiral going on where there are labor shortages. So uh, people retired or left or during or were laid off during the pandemic. And now there are fewer people trying to work more hours, fewer operators trying to to run you know more service or, or the service that we have. And that of course is extremely difficult. It makes it hard to hire new people and there's a delay with that kind of thing. So we're seeing those two challenges being faced uh, by agencies all across Canada. But I do think that the way in which different agencies respond or, or the way in, in which different agencies manage you know, how things have changed is resulting in some of those differences. So we're seeing good examples, Edmonton, Brampton, they're kind of back up to, to 100% ridership in, in some cases. And then we're seeing a lot of other places, Vancouver, TransLink ridership is up, you know, to that 80% level. And it's that next 20% that's going to be the difficult thing to do. Yeah. And you've mentioned Montreal is another place, too, that that one of the issues, uh, and certainly Toronto, is that when you start cutting service, you're basically shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah, absolutely. So cutting service is, there's a very, very direct link between how often a bus comes on a route and how many people use that bus. And so if you cut service, if you, let's say, even go from a bus that comes every 10 minutes to a bus that comes every 15 minutes. That's a, that's a third change. So you're you're going to lose a, a pretty significant amount of riders that way. And then you're also going to lose the fare revenue from that, which means you have to start looking at things again. And so I think there's a bigger question we need to, to you know, have or a big, bigger discussion we need to have about how transit gets funded, especially the operations, how transit gets funded in, in Canada, and, and that there needs to be a more stable way of, of doing things so that you don't have to react to ridership changes, but you can sort of make adjustments that are a little bit more long-term. 
One of the things that strikes me is that we've talked about the importance of public transit, uh, in made, especially in big metropolitan areas, for a long time now. Uh, and yet it feels like the pandemic sort of set everything back. And all of a sudden, the money isn't quite there, or at least as you pointed out, uh, the way that public transit is, is financed in a lot of cities isn't working. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of great solutions as to how to make it happen. Uh, what could be done? Yeah, I think part of the problem is, you know, transit systems, especially for for that sort of fair revenue for that ridership thing, we've been focused so much on the nine to five commuter. And I think the nine to five commuter is maybe the the area of the workforce, which is able to go online more. And so that's, I think, where we're seeing that missing 20%. Um, and so I think we need to understand that there needs to be a change in the way we plan transit, the way that transit networks are, are served, the way that, you know, buses serve the city, which is that we need to start thinking less about that, you know, in and out of downtown trip and much more about that everywhere to everywhere trip. So people making trips for all sorts of different purposes and getting to all sorts of different places throughout the city. That's something that you can do with sort of these grid networks that are nice and frequent. People can just kind of go up one way and then transfer and go across the other way. That's sort of some of the way forward. So we do have to essentially rethink a little bit about how public transit works to serve what is a modern reality versus that sort of hub and spoke nature of of the way public transit's always worked, which is essentially to bring people into into the core more or less, and that you know service between uh, a more disparate point A and point B was pretty bad traditionally. That's correct. Yeah, those crosstown trips are the ones that are very difficult to do in in most you know North American cities, especially, but really everywhere. Those those are really hard trips to do, and now they're becoming more and more uh, important for sure. Willem Klumpenauer is a transport research consultant and postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Toronto in their transit analytics lab. We're talking about the state of public transit across the country. It is a somewhat uh, scattered map right now about which cities have seen their transit really bounce back since the height of the pandemic. Others are struggling more, especially areas that really rely on fares because fares are down. More people are at home, less people are transiting, and therefore the system is, is lacking money. There's also been, obviously, a human resources issue with transit right across the country. I know we see that where I am in Victoria. Uh, They're searching for drivers. Everywhere you go, you see ads for drivers or for transit workers on transit systems. That's true. Yeah, that's that's exactly what's going on. And I think many of the people that have been doing it for years left during the pandemic. And now there's a a new cohort of people that need to be attracted. And so, you know, in in some cases, there's some conversations about, you know, what what is causing, you know, this gap between the employment that's offered by the transit agency and and what people want to do. The issue of security has come up a lot. I know specifically in Toronto, there's been a series of incidents on public transit that have left, uh, according to a new Ipsos poll that Global News did, did this week, have left perhaps not a huge number of people feeling insecure on transit, but changing the way they use it. And that's playing into this too. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's true. I think we need to take a good hard look at the data about how how many incidents are happening and, and where they're happening and how much is actually changing. And then we also need to understand that what is making people feel unsafe and what is making people, you know, what is contributing to that to that conversation. And then the third thing is what is actually going to help address that that issue. Because it, it is complex, right? I mean, that this is a, a a much broader societal issue that we've experienced over the course of the pandemic and issues such as addiction and mental health and homelessness and where can people shelter and so forth. So it, it is a massive subject. But transit at the end of it uh, seems to be bearing a bit of the, of the brunt of this. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think transit is a place. I mean, the beautiful thing about transit, right, is where is that people share their space and share rides to get to where they need to go. That's what makes transit so useful and so powerful in cities. But it also means it's a place where you see these interactions between people where that's where these these kinds of interactions happen. And so this is where the stories come from. But I think, you know, as you said, the transit is, you know, what I call a wicked problem, right? It's connected to other problems throughout throughout right. society and, and even in transportation. And so you're right, the, there's a lot of the problems that we're seeing need to be addressed in a way that isn't directly related to the transit system. Are we seeing this right around the world? I mean, I've lived in Europe and lived in Asia and, and transit systems there. People heavily rely heavily on, on public transportation. And no doubt they, those systems experienced some of the same shortfalls during the height of the pandemic. How have other places been bouncing back compared to us? Yeah, I think, you know, in the European case or, or in other cases, the transit system was maybe more robust to begin with, right? So right. there was just the usefulness of it and the ability for it to bring people to where they need to go was there. And, and that didn't really go away. So there, you know, in, in Europe, there's a lot more prioritization of public transit, you know, movement over the car necessarily. So, you know, that's one example that tr transit is still faster. And if transit is still faster, then people are going to take it. And so I think the, the value proposition hasn't really changed from transit, but because there was this underlying structural sort of robustness that happens in other countries that maybe doesn't exist here, there might be a bit more resiliency that way. And I think we're seeing some resiliency and we're seeing some some bounce back. I don't want to be pessimistic. Um, I just think it's, you know, it's lagging and, and there are some things that we could do to to really push it along. Yeah, I suppose that it boils down to just how much of a priority is public transit in individual jurisdictions, right? That's really what it what it boils down to. If you have a if you have a funding gap because ridership is down or fares are down, then you either have to devote to it because you think it matters or you don't. Absolutely. And I think we need to involve, you know, all three levels of government in the conversation because I think cities, you know, they only have so many mechanisms for, through which to fund things. Provinces and and federal government have a lot more flexibility on those kinds of things. So there's been a lot of calls throughout the years for, you know, direct operating funding for transit coming from higher orders of government. And that is very rare to see. And so, you know, I think that's something that needs to be talked about as well, because municipalities only have so much flexibility. Yeah, and we're in an odd situation now where, for instance, uh, the 416, which is really the major transport public transit hub of Ontario, the 514, which is the major transit hub of, of Montreal, both have governments in, in provincial power that weren't really elected by the cities themselves. So there seems to be a bit of a disconnect there, too. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I will say there's a lot of transit infrastructure being built in the greater the greater Toronto area, at least, mm -hmm. and, and even in Montreal as well. So there is a lot of infrastructure, but, you know, you can build as much infrastructure as you want. If you don't have the underlying operations down, it's not going to be a useful service, right? And so people are not going to rely on it. And people who do rely on it are, are going to be let down. Yeah. Uh, I guess so in a nutshell, because of what's happened and, and the idea that remote work is probably here to stay with us for quite a while, that we need to kind of rethink how, how we approach transit to make it more convenient, just like we've tried with everything uh, sort of post-pandemic, or at least at this stage of the pandemic, that we need to kind of rethink what public transit looks like in a big city. Yeah. And I don't even think that, you know, there's a radical transformation we have to come up with there. I think there are some good principles that many people out there know about that we can rely on, right? Like frequent service is good service. Um, you know, sort of this ability to go from anywhere to anywhere really is, is attractive to a lot of people. So I think there's lots of good work we can, we can draw on and those changes can be made. But of course, you know, everything happens slowly. Yeah. Uh, do you get areas. the sense that it is, that it is a priority right, right now? Or are, are people alive to this problem? 
I think so. I, I think there is a lot of conversation. Obviously, I have my ears perked, but I hear I do hear a lot of conversation about public transit pretty much everywhere I go. People who are not necessarily in the in the business, so to speak. And I do think there is some conversation coming from various levels of government of how important it is. Um, I think we still have to sort of shift the tide a little bit in terms of our budget reflecting our values, so to speak. And there's still a lot of, of funding that goes towards roads and, and travel by vehicle compared to, to public transit spending. That shift has to become more dramatic. I think it's possible. And I think as sort of climate goals start to loom more, those conversations will get louder. Well, Willem Kleppenauer, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's been a while since we've talked about what's been going on in Iran. You'll remember in the fall, we did quite a few interviews about the ongoing protests that were happening there, protests against the regime. They were sparked by the death of a young woman named Masamini. She was 21. She was uh, she died in uh, custody of the morality police, allegedly for not wearing her, her hijab properly. And it sparked a huge wave of protests right ar- across the country. Mainly women and also schoolgirls were involved, heavily involved in these protests, right on the front lines a lot of times. And it shook the regime, as far as we can tell from all those we've spoken to, it shook Iran's regime, who are generally old and male, to their core. And they've been, you know, they've cracked down on them already. There's been lots of arrests. There's been lots of crackdowns since. And the protests have died down a little bit. But amid all that, Something else has cropped up, an even more sinister-sounding um, retaliation, perhaps. We don't quite know. Uh, it's a crisis in Iran right now over the suspected poisonings of Iranian schoolgirls. And that escalated Sunday when authorities acknowledged that more than 50 schools had been struck in a wave of possible cases. The poisonings, poisonings have spread fear amongst parents, uh, as Tehran has faced months of unrest already. Now, it's not clear... What is responsible since the poisonings began back in November? Reports now suggest that across 21 of Iran's 30 provinces, we've seen suspected cases with girls' schools the site of nearly all of these incidents. Now, education has never really been challenged in Iran since the revolution uh, in 1979, not the way that you see it in neighboring Afghanistan with the Taliban. Uh, Still, there are questions. Is this about preventing girls from getting a proper education. Um, Here is Global's Turiya Isri with some details about what's going on. Schoolgirls arriving at hospitals disoriented and struggling to breathe. First, we smelled gas in the classroom, says this student. Then people became dizzy. One by one, they became sick after noxious fumes wafted through the classroom. The so far unexplained illness has hit hundreds of girls in 50 schools throughout the country. It's not clear what substance is making them sick. The regime initially dismissed the cases when they began in November and only now is vowing to investigate. The interior minister has assigned what he calls a special committee, admitting some of the samples collected are suspicious. Tehran has blamed opponents of girls' education and also the country's enemies, accusing them of inciting panic. But women's rights activists suspect it's an act of retribution from the regime itself. This is the the reality of Islamic Republic against women. And then what's happening recent is clearly they are taking revenge. Young women have been at the forefront of anti-government protests sweeping the country. 
They began after the death of Masa Amini, killed in Iranian custody, after she was arrested for not wearing her hijab properly. The apparent poisonings have sparked more protests from desperate parents who say they're being silenced. The Iranian regime is also once again cracking down on citizens demanding their human rights and fundamental freedoms. The U.S. says more than 500 Iranians have been killed in the crackdown. But human rights organizations believe that number is much higher. Taria Isri, Global News, Ottawa. That report aired a little earlier this week. So you get a gist of what's happening there. Uh, Again, there are a few answers, lots of questions, and certainly outside of Iran, from those amongst the Iranian diaspora, a lot of concern. Joining me now is Jasmine Ramsey. She is the Deputy Director of the Center for Human Rights in Iran. Thanks for your time tonight, Jasmine. Hi. This has been, um, for those watching from afar, it's it's certainly a, a puzzling and disturbing one poisoning of schoolgirls, it seems. What's going on? Uh, Since November, we've been getting reports of girls in class feeling sick, feeling nauseous, numbness in their bodies. This was coming out of Iran since November. It took until March for Iran's government to admit that these attacks are indeed deliberate, that schoolgirls are being gassed in class. And yeah, that's a question, a big, big question that we have over at the center. How in a country like Iran with a sprawling state security apparatus where people can't even have dinner without the government knowing about it, could the government not know that these attacks were deliberate until March? How widespread has it been? I understand it started in, in Qom, which is a city people may be familiar with. It was the it was sort of the, the, the rise of, of the Ayatollah Khomeini back in the late in the 70s. Uh, but is that where it began? And how much has it spread since? Right. I'm not sure where it began. I mean, it, it, the thing is, with Iran, information trickles based on the screws that the government has on that information. In July, the president of Iran, who was basically handpicked, said that government agencies should more forcefully enforce the compulsory hijab. And he had also implemented anti-vice classes in universities. So this was really an attempt to take Iran back decades ago to closer to the time after the revolution when restrictions on personal freedoms, particularly on women, were much more extreme than they are now. And it's not as though they're lax right now. And then just a few months after schoolgirls, for the first time ever, were prominent participants in anti-state protests, just a few months after that, being gassed in their classes. This is a deliberate attempt to block access to education inside the country, particularly for girls and women who are really the future leaders of the country. We know, of course, in this country, the Taliban's attitude towards women's education. Uh, In Iran, though, even since the revolution, it has been an area that hasn't been as targeted, as far as I can tell. Over time, over the decades, it has not been an area where we've seen these sorts of attacks, at least not widespread. It seems like women's education has been not perfect, but at least there since. Before the revolution, women didn't have limits on their education, nor did they have their professional occupations. For example, we had women judges back in Iran before the revolution. After the revolution, women in the country got access to higher education. And in fact, now women in Iran are among the most educated in the Middle East. However, they are banned by the government from holding positions that carry power. 
such as being judges, such as running for president. So they are educated, but they are expected to maintain the traditional place that is the traditional mind in the mind of the Iranian government. And there's all sorts of policies uh, across the country that try to keep women outside of public life and in the home taking care of children. The reaction of the authorities has been interesting because in the case of the protests, it was right away was condemnation. Here there was denial. Then there were suggestions it could be any number of things, psychosomatic, who knows. And now it seems there's a harder, they're, they're taking this seriously. How do you explain that change in tone from the regime that often likes to deny these things? I mean, this idea that it's psychosis, just like the oldest form of uh, sexism, you know, because the primary targets are children and they're girls, then it must be hysteria. I mean, this is really just propaganda by a government that refused to admit for months Mm -hmm. girls were attacked all across the country while it just completely said that nothing was happening. Now that the entire world is seeing this and that there's actually calls from inside Iran, prominent human rights lawyers calling for a committee of experts to be comprised of experts from UNICEF and UNESCO. So these are the premier organizations on children's rights, education and public health to assist in investigating these attacks because the Iranian government has failed They've made some arrests and we have no idea who they're arresting. We know that in these kinds of cases, people are not allowed access to due process. There is no transparency. What we do know is that the attacks are not just ongoing, they're increasing. And that's why this is hitting again, as I said, the heart of the future of the country, which is girls' access to education. So to when you look at the possible motives behind this, there is, of course, the idea of the broader notion of, of girls' access to education. We've certainly seen that in neighboring Afghanistan. There's also young girls, as, as you pointed out earlier, that schoolgirls were were heavily involved, involved in the protests that erupted in the fall. They were sort of, and it was a much publicized frontline part of the whole protest movement was schoolgirls. Uh, do you think they're being, is this, a tar- they're being targeted for both these things? This is both broad and current? Yes, exactly. So, There's more university graduates in Iran that are women than they are men. However, they are blocked by the government from holding positions that can carry power. Women are simply not allowed to do these things. And so there's a big disconnect between the women's education and then their ability to take that education to gain not only financial independence, but also independence outside of the home, outside of so-called traditional roles that see women um, inside the house out of the public view and taking care of children. So you can imagine that when suddenly schoolgirls, who, by the way, are also forced to wear the compulsory hijab um, from a very, very young age, basically from the age of puberty, where they are considered able to marry. Okay, so the moment that they hit puberty by Iranian law, they can get married um, and the parents can make that decision. From that perspective, seeing these girls not only ripping off their hijabs, taking photographs of themselves, they're chanting anti-state slogans. They're saying woman life freedom. This is terrifying to the old men who have held power in Iran since 1979. And I am sure who are very aware that these girls are going to outlive and outlast them. 
Jasmine, it, it looks like, I mean, you mentioned this earlier, that human rights lawyers in Iran are calling for outside bodies to come in and have a look at this. The UN would be the perfect one, obviously, and they have they have powers here. Could it happen? I mean, it, I, ultimately, it's the g- government of Iran and not the people of Iran who are who makes that decision. There are some UN agencies that operate in Iran, for example, UNICEF, but they also have extreme restrictions on them and their workers are honestly under risk all the time. But just because it's not likely to happen doesn't mean that we shouldn't amplify that call, especially since it's coming from inside the country, from human rights lawyers, including Nasreen Sutudeh, who has taken grave risks by adding her name to this call. And that being said, what could an international investigation uncover that that the government, you think, won't bother doing? Because it looks like they've, by admitting this is happening, they've somehow up the ante for themselves a little bit here, that they're going to have to some somehow find someone to blame for this. Right. I mean, the, the key question is, first of all, what are the public health dimensions of this? What are the long-term effects of children being gassed in class, but then also the social impact, um, parents having to send children to school and worrying about that? Um, and so these are the these are the organizations that really have expertise on a very kind of macro level can take a look at that. Besides that, there's also this need to acknowledge that the government itself is simply not providing security for its people. These attacks flourished under this government. There was fertile ground for these group or groups to carry out these attacks in an organized manner all across the country. And it took months for the state to even admit that they were deliberate. So there's a serious failure there. And we're talking about children's health and children's access to education. There's a lot of people that seem to think that there's a big difference between Iran and Afghanistan. Of course, Afghanistan is a war-torn country. But at the end of the day, the people that are leading both countries have very similar ideas about where women should go and what they're allowed to do. Iran's government has more resources and they simply are just a few steps further than where the Afghan government is. So this is a very important issue that must be addressed because it's going to be generational consequences that if if we don't allow this to happen, Iran could end up where Afghanistan is. And just to be clear, we don't know at this point exactly what's happening. Right. No one's actually said, here's what's happening inside these schools. Here's what's being used. There seems to have been a blanket across this. I mean, are there investigations going on even into what's been what's happening to these young girls? Yeah, there are. Uh, Again, there's no transparency, but there's there's acknowledgement that these are poison gas attacks in classrooms. We also know that some of the victims in hospitals have been questioned and interrogated. In some cases, the parents interrogated by um, agents of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. They're taking their their basically their hospital records and taking a look at it. So we do know that the the further details we don't have. And I'm not sure in a country like Iran, we're ever going to have that. I want to remind viewers that during the widespread protest movement just a few months ago, there was a massive fire in this very notorious prison. It's notorious because it has held political prisoners in Iran right. even before the revolution. This Including was- Zara Kazemi, right? Of course, who's a Canadian. Yes, this was Evan prison. Mm-hmm. Yes, she was held there. 
there was this huge fire and people died and part of the prison burned down. It was just insane. To this day, there's been no answers about what happened. No independent reporting allowed, no independent investigation. And this is just constant. And also in the case of Zara Kazamik, who was a Canadian citizen, her family to this day was never allowed to seek true justice within that country. So this idea that we're somehow going to find out through the Iranian government what happened, it's just not based in the facts that we have now. And what has happened to the protests? Because I, I we've we've kind of turned our eyes away from from them. Uh, what is going on? Are they still are they still happening? Absolutely, they're happening, but not to the extent of people being in the streets and being gunned down by this by the state. It we must remember, the protests went on for four months against lethal state repression. They started to get out of the streets once they started to hang protesters in public. That's what it took to get the people to stand down. And of course, they're still not standing down. There's protests happening everywhere, even at the schools where parents are blocked off from accessing the schools when the security forces basically swarm the school. If there's been a poison gas attack, the parents can't access their children. So the parents stand outside of the schools or they're standing outside of education departments and they're chanting things like death to this child killing regime. So again, This is something that we should all think about with Iran because the people's demands for fundamental human rights, for freedom, for a government that is accountable to the people have not been met. Always there will be sparks that will start more protests. And the fact that they went on for as long as they did in the streets with so much repression, hundreds were killed, tens of thousands were arrested. It's truly amazing, and it really speaks to the anger that lies beneath the the surface of Iranian society. And at the same time, this government that continues to fail not only to listen to the demands of the people, but serve their basic needs. Jasmine Ramsey, as always, thank you. Thank you. Let's talk about bad days. We all have them, right? You can kind of tell, I mean, the older you get the more you you just know right away that your day is not going to go the way you hope it's going to go. Sometimes you don't sleep well enough. Sometimes you wake up on the wrong side of the bed. Sometimes something goes wrong early in the day and you realize that even little things you're not able to put up with and you just know ah, it's going to be one of those days. Now, I think when I was younger, I would rail against those days. You would rage against those days. I'm not going to let this day turn bad. I'm going to turn it right. And, you know, you basically just make the problem worse. Um, So how do you, how do you make a bad day a little bit better? Can't always make it good, clearly. That's if it would be a bad day, right? I I suppose at the end of it, you should never have, if you follow all this advice, you should never have a bad day. But that seems awfully optimistic to me. We all have bad days for a number of reasons. Sometimes it's just our state of mind. Sometimes, you know, Everything that could annoy you about people in a single day happens. That happens, right? But how do you surf through it? How do you find peace in those in the, during a turbulent day, for instance? Um, lots of people have different ways of coping with it. Some people, uh, again, like to rage against it. Some people like to wallow in it. Some people like to keep a low profile. Maybe you just like you're at home, so you just want to throw yourself on the couch and watch TV and just wait for tomorrow to come and hit reset. 
distract yourself for as long as possible. Of course, it could depend on your circumstances and your responsibilities. If you have young kids, there is no time for having a really bad day. You just need to move on with it. If you have something that pressing at work that you absolutely need to do, you also can't really afford to have a particularly bad day. But what if you were to embrace those bad days? What if you actually make them work for you? Here's how my next guest describes this phenomenon. Quote, there's an art to having a bad day, and I've been getting better at it. I used to be terrible at bad days. Like so many people, having a bad day for me was just bad. I'd rant, self-medicate, threaten, berate, rage, refuse to accept my mood, and eventually take refuge in impotent self-pity. If I used caffeine to make myself feel better, which I frequently did, I succeeded only in pushing myself in ever-diminishing circles around unproductive tracks that led to poor or no results. All this makes a bad day into what it feels like most of the time, for most people, really awful. These days, when I have a bad day, it's still bad, but I can mitigate the badness of it by working the grain of its badness into a sort of polished artifact that I'm okay to live with or even enjoy in a bittersweet way. I can even glean some goodness from a bad day. The author of those words is Lauren Shorter. He's a consultant and writer, author of The Optimist, One Man's Search for the Brighter Side of Life, and the more recent The Lazy Guru's Guide to Life, A Mindful Approach to Achieving More by Doing Less. And he joins me now. Lauren Shorter, thank you. Oh, thank you, Ben. And it's the first time I've ever noticed that both of my books have the word life in the subtitle. Can you believe? I there think I've be, just there, never noticed that. There must be a reason for it, because certainly the, the, the subtitle of the second one, uh, doing you know, Achieving More by Doing Less, is very enticing. How did you, what was that approach? Because you came from a very rigorous finance background and then sort of had to stop and take stock. How mm. does one approach uh, Achieving More by Doing Less? I came from the opposite direction, and that always equips you to to, to have a view. You're doctor, doctors who take their own medicine, as it were. I, I I was a very stressed out, agitated, impatient, ambitious, driven twenty something coming out of the high intensity British exam system. Went to elite, you know, went to Oxbridge, and I was really trying to prove something to myself or someone else, I don't even know who, but everything was displaced to the future. It was very, I was very, I was aware of it at the time. I was aware of how impatient and agitated I was. I remember pacing up and down train platforms, unable to stand still. I had no awareness at that time that what, what was actually operating inside me, though, was intense discomfort that had been caused by shocks to my system when I was younger. And I was doing what people do, which is trying to make my life better by thinking of a big dream and going for it, which in that time was making a lot of money quickly so that I could then be who I really wanted to be. Or then I could relax in some imaginary fantasy sense and become a creative and an artist. That, that's where it began. I, I began as someone who really did not know how to relax yeah, I, I found it fascinating. I mean, you refer to uh, something called Wu Wei, which is a Chinese yeah. word of no trying, essentially. Yeah. Um, how do you balance the two where you still want to be productive and you still want to do good things and achieve to a certain well, extent, but also yeah. slow down? Well, you know, Ben, I'm still trying to answer that question. And something I've learned that's very interesting about writing, and I've written two books, both of them, there was a seven-year gap between them. 
something about the notion of being effortless really grabbed me. It, it really got hold of me. It's something I know innately inside of me. And I suppose everyone has this innate knowing. You can, you can be in a completely wrong track in life, and yet there's part of you that knows, hmm, I wasn't made to be this way. And I think I always had that inside me, like there is a way of being that I know is possible. And it was only later that I started to realize that there were reference points for this in Taoism, in you know, Chinese law, Wu Wei, you know. And I started to realize that actually it's possible. Of course, now I have three small children, which I didn't when I wrote the book. It's like all very easy to say, be relaxed and things will happen on their own. Brilliant. When you have children, of course, and you're running a business or you're doing anything with a lot of responsibility, it really starts to push any theories right to the limit. But the one thing that unlocks it is using structured time in a way that skillfully allows you to tune in and think deeply about the actions that you need to take in life and it's incredible and as i'm a coach now and consultant to ceos and and whatnot people who run businesses and i am amazed almost every day by how people don't really know how to think we've learned to think in a very different way and retraining myself how to think deeply reflectively um, but every day about what i'm doing is something that i've discovered is of great value to others you know, the article I wrote that you, you know, we connected about ha having right. a bad day. That's where it comes in because you can't think deeply without slowing down. And you can't think deeply without, without the brakes going on. And the people who never put the brakes on rarely, if ever, have the time or space to think in that way that leads to all the creative breakthroughs. What, what was interesting is, of course, yes, I did see that uh, you wrote an article on Substack. You have a Substack page. I'll mention that later about how to have a bad day. And it caught my eye because uh, it, it, it's very tangible and timely advice for all of us. We all have bad days. So how do you have a good bad day <laughs> or how do you try to? And it was an interesting way of approaching it in terms of recognizing it and so forth. So to start at the beginning, how do you have a bad day? And you were having well, a bad day when you wrote it. Yeah, I was having a terrible day. And there are reasons why I was having a bad day. I'd had really interrupted sleep from my one of my kids and I was tired anyway and I couldn't figure out what to do to focus on. And I couldn't do what I usually always did, which is just drink coffee until I was wired, right? And then just <laughs> say, I'm just going to do this and pushing my, my nervous system into action. And uh, the older I've got, you know, the body keeps the score, you know, as uh, Matt Ogabe says. Mm. There comes a point where it says, no, mate, listen, buddy, this ain't going to work anymore. It's my time. And that's what happened on that day. No matter what I was trying to do to wake myself up, it wasn't working. So I've learned, and this is what the article is about, how to speed up the grief process when it comes to, <laughs> I thought I was going to achieve something. Oh, no, I'm not. Okay. And then you go through anger, denial, and then accept. Yeah, the five right? stages, right, of course. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And then eventually you're like, oh, once you realize that actually you're not going to be, you're not going to be alpha today, you know, you're not going to be productive by the common definition in our unforgivingly always-on culture where we expect ourselves to deliver within daylight hours plus 
you know, added hours with electrical light, you know, industrial time um, without lying fallow, without resting, with no kind of hibernation, we realize that you, you cannot you cannot be creative in those circumstances and you cannot really do anything of real value. The bad day is the sort of gift. It's the gift with a silver lining. It's the, it's the classic, you know, gray cloud which has a glimmer of light in it. If you accept that it's bad and you give up trying to do anything, then you can sink into a deeper sort of relationship with yourself. Lauren Shorter is a consultant and writer. His latest book is called The Lazy Guru's Guide to Life, a mindful approach to achieving more by doing less. We're talking about a recent article that he wrote on his Substack page. I'll give you the address at the end of the interview about how to have a bad day. And then step number one is that we can all have them. Step number two is to recognize them. I thought that was great, Lawrence. You say, you know, if you're truly skilled at it, you recognize early on, you know, you've already, you're only a few, uh, you know, a few kilometers into that run where you, where you decide you're not running the whole marathon that day. Um, So you need to recognize and accept early on. Yeah, I think that's right. For years, I would just not notice it. And when you're younger, you can do that. To some extent, you can, your resilience will just push you through. But then, yeah, the, the next step is like noticing, oh, wait a second, this is not going to go as I had planned. And I think there are some branching like paths here. I think, you, you know, there are moments where you can jolt yourself out of it. But how many times have you heard someone say, oh, just go for a run or have a cold shower or do it and then, you know, pull yourself together? I think what I'm trying to say is that if you really want to have a good, bad day, there comes a point where you give up on trying to achieve what you'd originally planned. And then, and this is the key sort of pivot, understanding that your bad day is actually expressing an underlying need. And that's when you kind of, oh, I get it. But it's not easy because nothing about you wants to have the bad day, right? So there's this kind of like, oh, no, I don't want to do this. And then there's a little tussle, there's a little fight. And at some point you're like, hmm, I'm just going to give in. I'm going to yield to this. And that's when... You can put on some kind of, you know, sorrowful Spotify track and curl up yeah. in bed. Yeah. <laughs> Dig up my really? Joy Division records. And get <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. I, I, it's interesting, though, to, to look at it that way, because I suppose in many ways, having a bad day, if you're if you're feeling because it's a little, little thing, you haven't slept well, little things are bothering you that shouldn't bother you. It's always your brain and your body telling you just to take a step, like slow down slow down mm, yeah. but nurture your bad day is such an interesting enjoy it i found which is step the sixth step enjoy it's an interesting one because so many people rail against the idea that they haven't achieved what they wanted to achieve and by the end of the day oh today was a waste i had a bad day i'll do better tomorrow uh but instead you you found that having that bad day actually allows you there are benefits to it you've talked about the silver lining yeah, I think that's right. I have to say, look, there's a little health advisory on this, which is that 80% of my bad days do not lead, they don't get this far, right? So to get right. to stage six is like a kind of, you've really mastered the art, right? I think anyone can nurture their bad day. Once you've accepted that you're having a bad day, you can nurture it by just whatever you need to nurture the inner child part of you that hasn't been attended to for a long time. It's like, oh, I just need a good damn rest. Okay, that's nurturing it. Enjoying it's when you start to realize that from that rest, something starts to dawn on you. It's like, you know, wow, I, I need this. And not only do I need it, but I'm starting to think in a different way. I'm starting to think creatively about what's going on in my life. 
And I like that. And by the way, you can completely derail a bad day by just watching Netflix. If you distract yourself, you're missing the point a little bit. It's okay to distract yourself, but you're not going to get to that point of like the harvest of the richness there. There's a, there's a rich harvest if you're able to go that far. And neurologically, there's a, you know, your brain waves are moving into a slower, more reflective pattern. Um, and that's worth doing. And I think just the last thing I'll say is we have a kind of slightly, you know, fear of depression and there's a cultural thing about it, but it's okay to be depressed, right? Because from, from depression, as many of the great artists and writers and composers, etc., from depression comes insight, um, which is always a difficult horse to ride, but one that can bring you much joy in the long run. And if anyone, and if you're like me, Ben, or anyone listening is like me, I always have a queue of problems waiting to be solved, right? Some that we'll, you're always going to have these questions and problems queuing up in your head. And so to give myself the time to move into a different brain state and think about things is just so nourishing. Because if I don't think about them, it never happens. Things don't really change, right? You get stuck in patterns. Here's the thing. The aspiration is eventually you really shouldn't need to ever have a bad day because you're treating yourself so well um, that, you know, you don't need to. But like I say, I'll let you know when that happens to me. <laughs> Nirvana, I think they call that. That's, uh, exactly. that's uh, Lauren Shorter, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about trends. I mean, anyone who went to school, whether high school, university, college, whatever, you knew back in the day there was always drinking going on, right? Every generation thinks they've somehow found some uh, different way of doing something that everyone's been doing for a very long time. Um, and, you know, one of the things that surprised me with this story is that we've already been talking about in recent weeks that Gen Z aren't really drinkers. In fact, alcohol sales are way down. Gen Z drink far less. Uh, you know, this is the age, you know, they're born between 97 and 2012. Um, you know, some of them aren't of age yet, but in general, they drink way less when they're of age uh, than some of their predecessors, such as Jet X, myself, or the boomers, my parents. Um, but, you know, here they are fully plugged into social media uh, and a virtual world, and they are find, finding analog ways to tie one on. And of course, it all started on social media. It's all been spread on social media, TikTok in particular. The latest phenomenon is something called Borg. It's got nothing to do with Star Trek. It's the name of a new drinking trend. It's short for Blackout Rage Gallon. Blackout Rage Gallon. It already sounds ominous and like a very bad idea, but bear with me. It comes with a series of supposed pluses. Easy, cheap, uh, you keep your drink with you, so no chance of anyone tampering with it, and apparently less of a risk of a hangover the next day. Again, it's even touted by some as, as a harm reduction tool, which seems ludicrous uh, because you do keep it sealed and with you, but the contents are what, where the harm reduction doesn't happen. Uh, videos about it with the hashtag Borg have racked up tens of millions of views on social media. So in modern parlance, it's a thing. Healthcare professionals, of course, are quick to point out that it's not a thing. It's a dangerous thing, a dangerous combo of too much booze and too much caffeine. So what's in it? How does it work? And why is it, like just about anything else like it, past, present, and future, a pretty bad idea? Adam Shirk is with the University of Victoria's Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research, and he joins me now. Adam, thank you. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me tonight. 
So tell me a bit about, about the, the, you know, there's always some new phenomenon coming up, but w- tell me a bit about Borg. <laughs> what is it? What's in it? Yeah, so kind of like you said in your intro, this blackout gallon is, let me start by saying that this is an extremely bad idea. So drinking has been going on for a long time, of course, especially on campuses. But the problem that we have here with the blackout gallon is just the dose. The dose of alcohol in it is is extremely high. It's it's way higher than um, even, you know, like a reasonable um, kind of night out, whatever warrant. So it's <clears throat> we're sitting up at about 17 standard drinks or in one of these Borgs, one of these blackout gallons. That's the equivalent of 17 uh, bottles of 5% beer. So it's right. just very high. You know, it's much, much higher than a typical binge drink. Um, and so that's where the real danger comes in. That's what we're warning people against. Yeah, I, I guess the, the whole idea here is that it's not to promote it in the least. It's the fact that it's out there. Clearly, it's popular, which, again, I, I was under the impression that Gen Z had kind of put down the drinks. But but so just so listeners understand what's in this thing, it's it's you empty out half the contents of a gallon jug of water. So about 1.5 liters, right? Uh, refill it with 750 milliliters of alcohol. So it's water, booze, and then you add like electrolytes, like something along those lines. It sounds, I mean, no offense, it sounds vile, um, but it's a dangerous combination too if you add the, the, the caffeine to the booze, right? Adding caffeine to, to booze to alcohol is not a good idea. Um, but, but really here, it's just the, it's the size of the container and the really the vast amount of alcohol that people are adding into it. With a gallon. I mean, it's a gallon jug. Uh, Of course, not all of that is alcohol, but a very large portion of it is. And so there's just no, there's nothing good about this. I mean, I've seen some stories saying that, um, you know, it could be harm reduction, but in our opinion, it's just, it's harm creation. It's harm generation. To have that much alcohol in one sitting, um, whether or not you're mixing it with water or with electrolytes, which which is typically a good idea, of course, when, when you are drinking. It's just the very high dose, you know, I mean, the, that dose of alcohol is very likely to cause alcohol poisoning. And we have been seeing um, increased ambulance call outs. We've seen people end up in the emergency department because they just don't understand the dose of alcohol in these blackout gallons. Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, the idea of, of sort of uh, promoting copious amounts of drinking at that age in that environment is not new. In your, in your realm... How does one dissuade people from – yeah, I was just surprised to see yet another generation making the same bad decisions that every generation previous has made when this one, again, has more information than anyone before them. Right. It's it's a good point. Like, um, you know, I went through university myself a few years ago <laughs> – more years ago than I'd like to admit now. But the point is we drank at university. We We did – and we binge drank, you know, like, which is a, about five drinks per night. But I just want to get in. I don't think that people understand the dose here. It's three or even four times higher than that. So it's just, it's just the, I was really startled when I saw those videos. Many of them were depicting, you know, women and females. And that that dose is just too, way too high for someone to have on one night. It's, it's very dangerous and it will lead to poisonings. Do you get the, I mean, it's hard, again, I went to university many, 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 many years ago, long before TikTok, needless to say. Is this one of those things that that is in some strange way social media driven? I mean, it, it's people imitating what they see in a way that we always have to some extent. But in the past, I mean, 
there was more control on it, right? But here, here you have uh, a bad idea spread by people trying to pretend that it's a good idea. And, you know, that applies to many, many things, not just the Borg. Uh, yeah, I think that with social media, because of how fast ideas can spread, there is a danger there. And that's why we've been monitoring, we've actually been monitoring this, this blackout gallon pretty uh, closely. What I will say is that I don't think as many people are actually doing it as social media might make it seem. There's not a lot of reports of this in Canada. Most of them are from, from the U.S. And most of them are clustered kind of around <clears throat> in the Northeast U.S., um, there's just not a lot of, of evidence of, of a lot of university and college students picking this up, which is good. So it's, it, on the other hand, it could be this kind of thing that people are seeing it on social media. It's maybe only happened, you know, not that much um, compared to what we might expect. And so maybe that's kind of overblowing a little bit. We're thinking it's uh, more common than it actually is. Because it yeah. is like it, it's physically difficult to drink that much alcohol. You you should not try to do it, and yeah. not many people would would even really be able to do it. No, I case. mean it, 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 me. it's it's a bottle of liquor, right? So I mean, I mean, there, I, I was reading. I mean, because lots of experts have weighed in on why you should not be doing this. That there is, if you if you were to put much less alcohol in there, like much, much, much less, uh, and keep the water, keep the electrolytes. It's not. It could be. You know, you could still go through the same process and not, but I suppose that would defeat uh, defeat the notoriety of it, right? Yeah, I mean, you feel free to use a gallon jug if that's what you want. Just put three, you know, put three drinks in it instead of 17. So again, it's yeah. just really just that the pure alcohol in our drinks is ethanol. That's the drug. Yeah. That's that's the psychoactive drug. So it's that dose of ethanol that, you know, in a, in a dose that high, it will poison you. So if you put a gallon jug, it's a great idea to have water, to have electrolytes um, with alcohol while you're drinking. Put, you know, two, three, four drinks in there, not 17. And I think you'll have yourself a good night. You're not going to, yeah. you won't end up in the hospital with that. No, I, that's interesting that you monitor these things. I mean, it's not surprising given given what you do, but that, that monitoring social media for trends such as this, trends that could be dangerous, is part and parcel of, of the reality of doing your job now. Yeah, you're right. This this is actually a very um, unique case, and it is it's just because of the very high dose that's in there. There's not a lot of other things that have come around because the the directions are kind of specific. It calls for that gallon jug, and then it calls for um, the 17 drinks. You know, an entire bottle of spirits. It really jumped out at us as having a high potential for harm. And the reason that that would come about is if people just didn't really understand the, the dose. People like those of us who are drinkers, we kind of know the doses that we can handle. But when we go outside our comfort zone, maybe mix a drink that we haven't had before, but that we saw on social media, this can lead to dangers if we don't really understand that dose. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I, I suspect it would be tough for parents to, to, to understand. I mean, I think all parents have, or hopefully most parents have a conversation with their kids about drinking and limits at some point. But you might be surprised to find out that your college age uh, daughter or son is consuming that much liquor because it, just right at, at the very outset, it seems obscene. It seems like an obscenely bad idea, right? Any advice to, to parents about how to, because it, it's happening 
out there, right? I mean, I saw it in mainstream media, so I'm way behind. But it's uh, it's happening, so parents should be aware of it wherever they are around here, especially if their kids are on TikTok and they see this stuff, right? Yeah, and this is an advice just for parents. So for parents and for for any of us who are drinkers and for students, people on college and university campuses, really this is... I have to issue a warning. This is a really bad idea. Like, don't do this blackout rage gal. And it is just the, I mean, it it sounds like a joke because it, it really, it is like the amount of alcohol in here is just not really possible to consume. If you do it, it will lead to poisonings like it in a very high probability. Um, we've seen a lot of ambulance call outs for this. So, you know, yeah. consider this a warning. It is not idea, not a good idea to do this blackout gal. And I suppose if there's any silver lining here, you're actually not seeing much of it here compared to what social media may have you believe. Lots of people watch these things, don't necessarily imitate these things. Yeah, I think maybe that we can hope that um, most people are watching and not doing. We've been in touch, like my institute is at the University of Victoria. I know that campus services there is um, is watching this pretty closely, especially with St. Patrick's Day coming up next week. But there's no there's no reported incidents of this. And one thing, because it's so dangerous, if people are doing it, um, it, it will be kind of found out because because some of these people are going to get a dose high enough to be poisoned. There's just no way around it. So um, it is very yeah. evident if if people start partying to this kind of extent, you know, it's just the dose in it is very high. Oh, well, Adam Shirk, as always, uh, forewarned is forearmed. And um, here we are. I mean, it's not surprising that that college-age children, so college-age students sometimes do dumb things when it comes to drinking, but this one seems particularly obscene. So thanks for pointing out the dangers of it. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. It was good to talk about it. 